Hello goblins and ghouls, and welcome to another episode of my Haunted Life podcast with me, your host, Angela Hartshorn. How are you today? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you drinking water? Because I really hope you are. Not that I can make you do anything, obviously, because I'm just a voice on a podcast, but you really should. Just saying. Uh, I'm very curious to know, what does everybody do while you're listening to the podcast? Let me know. And I'm all for podcast selfies as well. So post those uh, in the Facebook group. This weekend, I'm in New Orleans for Hexfest. Many, so many of the people that have been on the show, Michael Herkus, Sandra Mariah Wright, Tanya Brown, Christian Day. Not sure if uh, Captain Fifi, aka Fiona Horn, made it up from Australia this year. But everybody else will be there. I'll be there selling my hats and hanging out in the vendor room of the Bourbon Orleans, which is a gorgeous freaking hotel, let me tell you. So if you're in the area, Pop in, say hi, come check out all the fabulous wares, and you can meet me in person. This week, I'm continuing the story leading up to the Devil Made Me Do It court case. We left off last week with poor David Glatzel fighting against the demons trying to possess him and his family trying their hardest to help him when they could. This is when famed paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine This is when famed paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren arrive on the scene. This episode is a heavy Warren episode. I start with some of their background and then go into their involvement with the case and the later exorcism. I was able to find old interviews with Ed and Lorraine, so you can actually hear the story directly from them. So I think that's kind of cool. So let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea, make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you. Ed and Lorraine Warren were paranormal investigators that traveled the world giving lectures on the paranormal and helping families for over 50 years. Lorraine was a trance medium, so in other words, she would go into a trance to have psychic visions, and Ed was a demonologist. Lorraine started having clairvoyant episodes as a child, and Ed grew up in what he believed was a haunted house. The two met as teenagers in 1944. Lorraine met Ed when her and some of her friends went to the movies and he worked there as an usher. 
I could not find what movie they saw. I'm assuming something with probably Yul Brynner or something in the 40s. So let's start off with a little backstory, shall we? I feel like it's important to go into Ed and Lorraine's history and relationship since it's such a huge part in the movies, especially the last one. After the movies, he offered to walk the girls home and buy them each a Coke. Lorraine ordered hers with an extra scoop of ice cream, which costed a whole 10 cents. Ed teased Lorraine the rest of their lives that he knew she was a gold digger after that. That night, Lorraine actually wrote in her diary that she had met the man she was going to marry. When he turned 17, Ed enlisted in the Navy and was quickly deployed. After his ship sank, he was sent home for a 30-day survivor's leave. Him and Lorraine were quickly married. After Ed was done with the Navy and returned home, the two quickly had a daughter, Judy. Ed decided to go to art school and he would paint his favorite subjects, haunted houses. He had always had an interest in the paranormal and when he heard of nearby haunted houses, he would go and set up outside the house, sketch or paint it, and then offer it to the homeowners as a way to introduce himself, but also, hopefully, to be invited into the house to hear about the paranormal occurrences. I'm just going to throw this out there. If anybody has an original Ed Warren painting that they would love to gift me. I would love you forever. Just saying. Uh, Lorraine was actually a skeptic at this time, but would go out with Ed while he did this. The two actually would sell his pieces at little pop-up stands in tourist areas. This is about the time when they founded the New England Society for Psychic Research. Actually, a lot of my information for this section came from the NESPR website, which is now apparently TonySpera.com, who is Ed and Lorraine's son-in-law. Some of their more famous cases, and many of which are now a part of the Conjuring movie universe, were Annabelle, the famous demon-possessed doll, the Parent family, which I talk about in episodes 18 and 19 when I talk to Corey Heinzen, the current owners of the house, if you want to hear more about that case, and the one that really started getting the media attention, the Amnibyville house. Fun fact, the story you see in the movie with Margot Kidder and Josh Brolin and the, then the remake with Ryan Reynolds is not the Warren version of events. According to Lorraine, there was a Native American burial ground under the house and some very angry indigenous spirits were the ones that caused Ronald DeFeo Jr. to kill his family.
this gives you a little backstory of what's going on with the Warrens before the third Conjuring movie starts. Because the movie starts immediately with the David Glassell exorcism. Also, one of my favorite things about the first Conjuring movie is when they are holding a lecture at the beginning of the movie and Lorraine starts having flashbacks to the case, they recreated a famous photo captured by the Warren team. Also, one of the audience members in the movie was the real Lorraine Warren. Judy kept seeking help. Actually, Debbie went around as well, asking people if they had heard of anything like this. They were afraid of this getting out and them becoming the crazy family in the area. But they knew they still needed help and to get out. Needed to get the word out. And the name Warren kept coming up, but no one had any ways to contact them. So, it was kind of like a dead-end thing, but the name kept popping up. Judy kept working with the church and was talking to a Father Dennis at St. Joseph's Roman Catholic Church in Brookfield, who was familiar with exorcisms and had participated in one about 10 years prior. That had left him with emotional and mental scars. He was also much older at this point and very much wanted to go visit his mother in Ireland and he didn't think he could physically withstand another exorcism. So he put her in touch with Ed and Lorraine Warren. At this point the Warrens had been investigating for about 25 years and had assisted in over four hundred exorcisms. That's a lot. (laughs) The Warrens had worked about nine years with the Catholic Church in the area, so they were pretty well acquainted, since they were just about an hour up the road in Monroe, Connecticut. They worked with a Reverend Francis E. Vergalac, which is really hard to say, quite a bit. They knew him. Uh, And with the other priests who eventually worked on David. On their drive over for the very first time on July 9th. Remember, this really got bad 4th of July and now you're getting famous world-renowned paranormal investigators in. that's, That's quick moving. Lorraine had a psychic feeling that this was going to be one of their biggest cases, both profound and dangerous, and she definitely was not wrong. We were contacted by Father Dennis, who at that time was pastor of St. Joseph's Church in Brookfield, Tony, Mm -hmm. and the call came in. And he spoke about a young boy who he had been trying to help, but recognized it as a case of possession. He told me 
that he was very leery of becoming involved in this case mm -hmm. because he had been assigned by the bishop to exercise another home, but this was not of an individual now, of a home that had infestation going on that we investigated. But he said, I want you to know that you have my prayers. At that time, he was going to Ireland with his mom, and he was concerned, I think, that the devil would get back at him maybe through his mother. Mm -hmm. Now, he spoke of David and David's problems. He said that David had a slight learning disability, and but there was very bizarre behavior occurring to this young 11-year-old boy. When he mentioned about the boy's problem with a learning disability, we had contacted a doctor in Trumbull, Dr. Jim Grasso, and asked him if he would be willing to go to the home with us that night. Mm -hmm. It was a real hot night, Tony. And the reason we asked Dr. Jim Grasso was because he too had a son with a similar problem. And we felt that if there were type of medication maybe that David would be on that might have been causing it, that he would recognize that, but that was not the case. Mm -hmm. David's case was not severe enough to have any type of medication. David was in the very beginning stages of demonic possession. Mm -hmm. We went to the house this hot night. I can remember like the steam and the moisture coming off the ground. It was a weird night when we arrived there. First, Ed tripped going up the steps into the house. And Dr. Jim Grasso made kind of a laughing comment. And he tripped and fell, too. And when we got in the house, we were sitting there at the table talking. Now, you would watch David, and he would be doodling, you know, drawing or something like that. And he'd be concentrating on what he was doing. And then he would look up, and it was no longer a little 11-year-old boy. Now, this 11-year-old boy would become extremely strong. I've seen nights when it would take four and five men to hold him down. He would be ranting and raving, raving and uh, yelling. Uh, there was times when he would attack his mother. Now, this boy loved his mother. He loved his father. And uh, at one time, he actually broke the mother's nose, I believe. Arnie Johnson, who was a young man that was engaged to his, uh, his sister, Debbie, would help every night to control the boy. He'd come out from work. He was a landscaper, worked very hard, and uh, he'd have his supper, lay down. But then just around 11 o'clock was when this would occur to David. <clears throat> As Lorraine said... All of a sudden, you look at him, he was normal. The next second, it wasn't David anymore. And uh, this would go on until the sun came up. Uh, the boy would roll around. Uh, he would go into fits. Uh, I seen one time when he actually levitated, had extreme strength. Uh, terrible obscenities would come from him. And Arnie Johnson, uh, who was a young man, who I would call probably uh, an all-American boy. He loved sports. He was into baseball. He had many awards for baseball. He loved fishing, and uh, he and Debbie, his fiancée, who was David's sister, 
would go off fishing and they'd have a good time. But this kid, 18 years old at the time, would stay awake all night long and then go to work the next morning. But he made a fatal mistake. One night he said, and he, he screamed at these devils, take me on, leave my little buddy alone. He challenged, well, he got his wish. He challenged the, he challenged, the demonic. He challenged the demonic. Now, by this time, Tony, into the case, the Catholic priests were already involved. Father Dennis had left for Ireland. Another young priest was assigned to the parish at that time, and another young man who had just recently been ordained mm -hmm. was also assigned there. They came to visit us. And the two of them, finally, it grew to having six priests involved in it. Six priests. Three of them. Three of them. From the Vatican. Three of them ordained and wow. schooled in Rome, these men. And they were very frightened of the things that Arnie would say. He was such a compassionate young man, such a low-key person. Never once did I see him show any type of violent behavior. He was a perfect gentleman, Mr. and Mrs. Warren, this, everything. Just a beautiful person. Tremendous respect for the priest. If you were going to have a son, he'd be the boy you'd want. Yeah, that's the kind of a boy he was, Tony. Mm -hmm. But he made that fatal mistake. And, challenging, challenging the devils. And I know that one of the Catholic priests even met with him to talk with him because he was so concerned about his welfare mm -hmm. and because like you say he challenged it tony and remember that when you challenge the demonic it doesn't act at that particular given time tony mm -hmm. it waits until you are the most vulnerable mm -hmm. and then it strikes when you least suspected when you least now, suspect now what On their first trip, they brought a Dr. Anthony DeGrosio to examine David. They knew David had a slight learning disability. I want to say I read it was dyslexia, but it wasn't major, but I haven't been able to find that since. But anyways, they wanted to make sure that his symptoms were not medical. They all started experiencing things immediately. Ed and Dr. DeGrosio were tripped going up the steps to the front door. When they were introduced to David, David giggled about them tripping up the stairs, something he could not have seen from where the family was sitting inside the house. The doctor said that David was medically fine. Lorraine could see a black mist form around David when Ed interviewed him. And when she asked him where the man was, he would point to where the mist stood. Then poltergeist activity broke out in the house. A flower vase levitated. The spirits knocked and banged and scratched on the walls. Ed asked the old man beast spirit who it was and answered Satan. 
Ed didn't believe that, since demons are known to lie. So he told it to throw him out the window. When it didn't, he threatened the spirit, saying that if they had to get the church involved, they were going to be sending it straight back to hell. Through David, the demon spoke to Ed, saying that nothing could drive him out, and they were all going to suffer. The Warrens believed that the Grassel family had a full demonic infestation, and David was in the throes of demonic oppression, but not yet possessed. The Warrens gave the family holy candles and water and told them to pray over David while they waited for the church to investigate. And Lorraine told Debbie to keep a journal of everything going on. They recorded these attacks. They documented everything. Because you need that to get an exorcism, which we'll go into a little bit. David's attacks continued. He kept getting beat up by unseen forces. Hoban footprints were found in Judy's room, um, like on her bedspread, which was kind of strange. And they faded away. Like they were able to capture like an image of it, I guess. I don't know if they were able to show people or what. I can't remember. But the footprints like faded away. People were grabbed. On one occasion, Debbie had her thigh touched after getting out of the shower. And not just touched, it was groped. Personal items were destroyed. Judy had a really hard time with the spirit knocking over all the bottles on her dresser continuously. Actually, in one case, Debbie had a leather belt pick up from a dresser and float above her face and just drop. One of the most famous was that of a little toy Rex toy that walked into the room and spoke to David as the beast, telling him he was going to be punished since the Warrens interfered. things that occurred to uh, Arnie and Debbie, uh, they would sleep on the floor oh, yes. uh, next to David. If he woke up, then they'd be there to control him. And uh, what they seen and <clears throat> described was a, a bone-like hand that came up through the floor, green, mm -hmm. and an arm. Now, again, these types of things are meant to frighten. Because they when do. a person becomes frightened, <clears throat> they will throw out psychic energy into the atmosphere, mm -hmm. which... A negative force will use as a fuel to manifest itself more. Okay, now where exactly did the exorcism take place? Oh, there's a slide right here. Is that's, that the church? That's, yes, it is, Tony. That's the church. <clears throat> Off to the right. Mm -hmm. the, the basement. See, it's, they now have a new, very beautiful church. The church in... That's the church in Brookfield. That was the first church. There's another one there now. There's another beautiful okay. church, and it was down in that basement which was adjacent to the school mm -hmm. of Tony, after the exorcism had been performed there, they knew they couldn't do it anymore. There was so much noise. 
and so much violence during that exorcism that it was even heard in the elementary Catholic school. Well, the doors in the back of the church would open and close. The pews were actually moving, which are bolted down. Hymn books that were in the uh, seats next to us flew off the seats. Mm -hmm. The boy broke away and from two of us and attacked the priest. And attacked the priest. So. Now what is this I, next slide? I wanted under? to show this. Oh, this is Debbie. Debbie and I. Yes. It's and Debbie. we're at the shrine in uh, Brookville right there. Mm -hmm. That's okay. David's sister. Right. We would go I there a lot. I brought a model with me of a dinosaur here. You did. And this model dinosaur had just been completed by David, the young boy who was possessed. And if we could close in on that, as he finished with this, suddenly it started to walk on its own, of its own volition toward the family. Mm -hmm. That plastic and dinosaur it, started to walk. plastic dinosaur, yeah, and, and it, a deep, gruff voice mm -hmm. came out of it and said, beware, you're all going to die. Mm -hmm. And you know, one time we were at the church there, we were showing a group of people where the exorcism took place, and a man was taking recordings. And on his recording, he got the same deep, gruff voice which said, why are you here? Yeah. Oh, he, he was, we were explaining, we were talking to a group, Tony, and this man was recording what we were saying about the Brookfield case when, when okay, that so occurred. This case, uh, now that animated, Tony. That walked. Walked. It actually walked. That walked. It, it doesn't. The, the thing isn't movable like that. You know, that. I, I seem to remember you speaking of a similar incident in the Amityville case. Is that true? Am I that thinking of the, the lion, the ceramic lion? Yes, the ceramic lion. Now, why would that California. happen? Is that just to scare everybody? Why would... Why it's would... to frighten people. It's to frighten them, as I said earlier, because as you become frightened, you throw off the psychic energy. Devils, demons, evil spirits can use this as a fuel to manifest more phenomena. Mm -hmm. They and, need some kind of energy, and that's the energy. And you know, David, the voices that he would hear when he was under possession, Tony... They would tell him things. For instance, they told him that Arnie Johnson was going to fall out of a tree. And Arnie did fall, but thank God, you know, he wasn't badly hurt. And, and the beast, as they called him, also told the boy that at the end of the trial, mm -hmm. the last day, the lights would dim down in the courtroom. And they did. And they, they did, did dim. In the book, The Devil in Connecticut, it is said that the dinosaur was about two feet tall, so it wasn't really like a little figurine in any way, shape, or form. And it was like an exact model of a T-Rex. And it actually belonged to Jason, Debbie's little son, who had just had received it for his birthday. Also, the warning, according to the book, was because they had just first brought the priest in. Either way, just imagine how terrifying that would be. Like, I feel seeing it in a movie would be a kind, kind of a corny-looking special effect. But in real life, and that big of a model, I think would be absolutely frightening. According to the family, at this time, violence would just break out among them especially with Carl Jr. It was said that he was being used by the demons to cause havoc and would actually beat his mother, sister, and younger brothers. 
David's abuse from the demons continued as well. He had his hair pulled out, he was scratched and choked, and his body was forced into unnatural positions. He was forced to do sit-ups until he vomited. He levitated on two different occasions. On August 13th, David's 12th birthday, the demons gave him no reprieve and attacked him and destroyed his birthday cake. His family would be up late praying over him. Arnie would go to work at his landscaping job during the day and then go back to the home to help with David. According to the Warrens, David would seem to change around 11 o'clock at night. Arnie would actually have David sleep in bed with him, or Arnie and Debbie would sleep on David's bedroom floor. So when David changed, they could be there to hold him down. Since David had started becoming more violent, he had become dangerous. He would swear and hiss and moan and actually attack his family members. He would quote the Bible and Paradise Lost and speak in strange languages. He would threaten their lives. Arnie would start challenging the demons at this time because he just he couldn't handle seeing poor David go through this anymore. So he would tell them to leave his little buddy alone. He would tell them to pick on him instead. And as we now know, that doesn't end well. Of course, it's St. Joseph's Church okay. in Brookfield, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. All right. This is where the first exorcism took place. Okay. And uh, it's an exorcism that I'll never forget. Uh, the first one actually was in the convent, mm -hmm. and that was not successful. Uh, it was that morning when David came under possession and would not <clears throat> get into the car. He ran away from his family. Mm -hmm. uh, he had a knife. Uh, he actually tried to kill his mother and his grandmother. And this is not David. David was a very mm -hmm. complacent child, very docile. Mm -hmm. And when I walked in, he was laying on the bed in a fetus position. This priest was standing alongside of him. And I said to the priest, don't stand so close because he had a bad habit of taking his fist and just hitting you. Mm -hmm. The priest backed up and suddenly that boy rose up out of the bed very swiftly, landed on the floor, mm -hmm. ran into a bathroom and locked the door. He would not come out. Hysterical laughter came from the bathroom. Finally, we broke the door. We got him out of there. We brought him uh, to the convent at St. Joseph's where the exorcism was performed on September 9th, the birthday of the Blessed Mother. So Yes, September 8th. And we felt that uh, this would be successful. And he told us that what they called the beast, which was seen many times in the house and out in the grounds, was back at the house. I went back there, and I had taken holy water with me while the priest stayed in the convent. I then went through the house, and I used what we call religious provocation. I sprinkled the holy water, and there was a rocking chair there. Mm -hmm. This rocking chair suddenly started to move back violently, back and forth. Mm -hmm. There were loud pounding sounds in the house. Mm -hmm. And then what I could hear is growling down in the cellar. 
Now, these were some of the sounds that we heard the very first night that we went there with Dr. Gian Grasso. But it sounded like somebody had a two-by-four and was hitting, hitting the floor the underneath floor us, but nobody was there. On September 8th, David went into full demonic possession. The demons would distort his facial expression so it almost didn't even look like David anymore. He started bloating to almost twice his size in his stomach and head. He broke his mother's nose. He held his grandmother at knife point. In one case, outside of the home, Arnie was driving home one night and saw a dark black figure standing in the road. The figure then pointed at a tree and Arnie's car smashed into it. He was luckily unharmed. But it was pretty obvious that the demon was sending a message. It was also pretty obvious that David needed an exorcism. If only it was that easy. Quick sidebar. In a lot of the Conjuring films, Ed Warren is shown giving the rites of exorcism. This never happened. Ed and Lorraine were devoted Catholics and believed that only an ordained, trained priest could administer an exorcism. Ed and Lorraine were there to help capture evidence so the priest could ask for a major rite of exorcism. The Warrens contacted the Archdiocese of Bridgeport and they sent Father Virgilac to investigate with other priests. And what is a major rite of exorcism, you might ask? That's literally what you see in every exorcism movie ever. It's very cinematic. Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1673, states when the church ask publicly and authoritatively in the name of Jesus Christ that a person or object be protected against the power of the evil one and withdrawn from his dominion, it is called exorcism. Jesus performed exorcisms and from him the church has received the power and the office of exorcising. In a simple form, exorcism is performed at the celebration of baptism. The solemn exorcism, called a major exorcism, can be performed only by a priest and with the permission of the bishop. The priest must proceed with prudence, strictly observing the rules established by the church. Exorcism is directed at the expulsion of demons or to the liberation from demonic possession through the spiritual authority which Jesus entrusted to his church. Illness, especially psychological illness, is a very different matter. Treating this is the concern of medical science. Therefore, before an exorcism is performed, it is important to ascertain that one is dealing with the presence of the evil one and not an illness. The Catholic Church is a little funny about exorcisms. 
Sometimes they claim that they don't do exorcisms whatsoever. Other times they say exorcism is used in extreme circumstances. This is all happening about 15 years before the Second Vatican Council, otherwise known as Vatican II, where the Catholic Church met to examine the church's role in the modern world, and they realized they needed some updating in their policies since, at this point, people are leaving the church in record numbers. One of the things that seemed archaic was the rite of exorcism. It was seen as barbaric, with many believing that demonic possession was more of a symptom of mental illness than demons. And mental illness can be helped by doctors and medicine. That's why that little bit was added to the catechism I read earlier. The idea of exorcisms became a PR nightmare for the Catholic Church, and they actively attempted to avoid them at all costs. Now working with doctors and investigating cases so the evidence could be reviewed before a right of exorcism was granted. Kind of like liability. At first, a major right of exorcism was not granted to poor David. Instead, the priests were allowed to do four different deliverance sessions. Basically the same thing. One was a holy mass that was held at the Gratzel home. The other was held at St. Joseph Church, where Judy had actually first turned to help her local church. These deliverance sessions were minor rite of exorcisms because they were not sanctioned to read the rituals yet. It's all based off of this permission and these rituals. The diocese acknowledges that Father Vergalac and three priests from St. Joseph's worked to resolve the boy's affliction. I want to say there were more that came in to help, but at least from St. Joseph. There were those guys. Though the priests themselves had been ordered not to speak publicly or with the investigators from the police. According to the spokesman for the diocese, the major rite of exorcism was not asked for by the priests, but both Ed Warren and the Glatz family said it was, and it was on tape. So they performed a series of exorcisms on poor little David. Here is the recording of one of them. Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 
You got to hold the mommy told me to. It was reported that it took several grown people to hold David down during these sessions. David would shout obscenities and attack those present. He would accuse everyone around him of different crimes, and it got to the point where some of the priests involved started having mental health concerns and started taking medications. The priests suffered along with the family. Lorraine sympathized with the priests as she worked with them closely, describing some of what they went through. I was in the house. That's the, that's the exorcist. He was the exorcist. Yes, he was. And he was very, very badly affected by this case. Yeah, in what way? Well, Tony, it was an all-night session at that house one night. All night we were up mm -hmm. with the exorcisms and the praying. And was that night, Tony, that I taught that little boy the guardian angel prayer, that angel of God, my guardian yes. dear. I taught him how to say that <clears throat> prayer. And that seemed to give this child a certain amount of comfort. And we were all, we were really exhausted, tired. But remember, but, the, the exorcist is attacked, not just yeah. while he's performing exorcism, but, but in his own rectory. That's what I was just going to tell you. Now, we left there early morning. Father Virgilac wanted to get back to Norwalk because he was going to say Mass that morning, and his parents were going to be at Mass. He did not want them to know. He didn't want them to be concerned for him. And he had shared things with his sister, but he had not shared things with his dad, who, by the way, was chief of police. Oh, really? And um, so that morning... Chief of police in Norwalk. Yes. In Norwalk. Yes. Oh, no, not in Brookfield. <laughs> now, uh, do we have a picture uh, of the Glatzels? Uh, yeah. I think, yes, there they are. There's okay. Judy and Carl That's Glatzel. the mother and father of David. That is after the boy was exercised. Both oh. extremely good people. And Jovial people. Jovial people. Mr. Glatzel there, as big he is, looks like Grizzly Adams. Mm -hmm. Could not hold that boy down alone. Oh no, he couldn't hold him there at all. There would be sometimes, as, as I said, four and five men that would have to hold this boy down. Okay, let, let's get into that just a little bit, if we could. Now, here's a picture. All right, here's there, a picture of him. Yes, what's he coming out of possession? Okay, he's crying and he's holding on to his mother. That now, is what he would do, Tony, all the time. Would you say, in your professional opinion, that he was possessed by a devil or a demon, or what? What would it be exactly? He was possessed by devils. Yeah, yeah, in fact, say. when they were, were spending the night at the Glossal home, I went into my study, and I called on the devil. I thought it was one devil, which they called the beast. 
to come to where I was at so I could bind the spirit of that devil. So we're going to go back into okay, the house. Okay, what's that bind? What's that mean? Binding of the spirit. The priests were casting out the devils of the house. I felt that the beast would then come to where I was, and I would bind the spirit through that ritual. But, Tony, that was one of the most frightening evenings of my life. There was not one devil. There were 43 of them. 43 which devils. came to me as a kaleidoscope, as if you were watching one horrible face after another. And remember, I was in that study by myself. Okay, what did you do? What, what, what happened? What did you do? If it was me, I think I'd have ran out. What did you well, do? I have to be honest with you. I was just stunned. I couldn't move. I was watching it. It happened very quickly. And as I watched it, it was like a kaleidoscope of horrible faces coming to me. I knew that I had no power up against this. I felt it was one devil, mm -hmm. and which they called the beast. But when I seen over 40 of them, I knew that we were dealing with the hierarchy of the diabolical world. At that point, I gave it up, and I went out of the study. Oh, so you did I left, yes. Because I knew that I did not have any control of what was happening here. Now, I was with the priest at the house mm -hmm. during this. So in the morning, I came home with them when they were coming home. And I felt that Father Virgil, I particularly, needed some rest before he... And I wanted him to take a nap before he went home because he looked exhausted. My uh, Tony, if you ever seen these priests... You know how meticulous they are about their appearance. Right. Leaving this house in the morning, they looked like they were coming out of battle, which, of course, they were. But he related to me that day, coming home, how when he woke up this morning, that his pillow was soaked with blood. Now, the blood that she's speaking of is called an apport through teleportation. This is meant to frighten the priests. It's meant to frighten us so that we would stop our investigation. Mm -hmm. But we understand and know the powers of devils. Now, Tony, I don't want you to think that that blood on the pillow was the priest because it was not. That was not his own blood. He was not bleeding. That was an apport, something that had dematerialized at one point and reappeared at another point that's was in this case really meant to terrify the warrens kept pushing for a major rite of exorcism but church politics was getting in the way considering how badly affected the priests were you would think that they would help persuade the archdiocese to act quicker. During one of the exorcisms, Arnie had had enough of watching his little buddy be tormented and taunted by the demon and demons and told it to leave David and enter him instead, though this seemed to no avail at the time. According to Lorraine, David made numerous references to murder and stabbings. We were sitting on a powder keg. In fact, David predicted at one point that Arnie would kill with a knife. The violence in the house had gotten so severe that Lorraine had contacted the police warning that something bad would happen and they needed to keep an eye on the Gratz family. 
But the police really couldn't do anything until something happened. You, you know, one thing that we have to stress that's very important is that we knew it was inevitable that there was going to be a tragedy. We knew it. We even notified the police. Because of the violence. And Lorraine did notify the police, Chief. That, what, did they, what did they have to say about it? Well, there was nothing we could do in advance. But it was the, before the fact. Before the fact, there was nothing they could do except watch and go to the calls whenever they would happen at the home. Mm -hmm. But all the priests knew it. It wasn't just myself. It was <coughs> all of the priests who were well aware that it was inevitable there would be a tragedy. But never, ever did we think it would be Arnie Johnson. Thank you to everyone out there listening today. I really appreciate it, and I hope you liked this one. I was not prepared for all the information I found, so I hope it was worth the wait. Y'all are a bunch of just sexy, demonic beasts, let me tell you. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast for when the rest of the episodes come out, you get notified and you don't miss a single one. If you like the show, please tell your friends and family about it. Word of mouth goes a long way. If you have a ghost story to share, don't forget to drop me a line at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow My Haunted Life Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Everything is My Haunted Life Podcast. I try to keep it simple. Don't forget that we also have a My Haunted Life Podcast Facebook page where we have a lot of fun. Kayla is just on those memes, let me tell you. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, please subscribe to the Patreon page. You can support the show for as little as $2 a month. It's not much. It's less than a coffee. And that's it for this show. I'll see you all next week on my Haunted Life podcast. And after these episodes, I hope you can sleep. Pleasant dreams.